This is the Gallinach Masters Cycling Podcast. I'm Norman Blissett, your host for the show. Gallinach Masters Cycling is a global community of 50 years and older cyclists who support each other to love life through riding our bikes. Each week we share inspiring stories from our riders around the world, showcase great places to ride our bikes and give tips to help you get fitter, healthier and more confident on the bike. Welcome everyone to this Gallinac Master Cycling Podcast. I'm Norman Blissett, your host for the show, and I'm delighted to be here with you and also to welcome Chris Foggin, Coach Foggy. How are you doing, Foggy? Kia Yes, very well, thank you. Still here in New Zealand, still enjoying life. Excellent. And um, you, well, we'll find out in a few moments what you've been up to, but yeah, it sounds like you've had lots yeah. of fun over the last few days. Um cycling in, in New Zealand. So this this episode we have a couple of a couple of features. So first of all we've got an interview which I recorded a bit earlier and we're going to listen to in a in a few minutes and that's with Suzanne Forup who is um a this is the head of development for Cycling UK in Scotland and a real passionate cyclist and and campaigner for women's cycling. So we've got a great interview with her which we'll hear in a few minutes. But before that, Foggy Tell us what you've been up to. Oh, usual um, uh, mix of things. So I had a, a week um, away from work, actually just riding uh, with my wife before she went back to school. We w- went to ride a trail, which is in uh, in Southland, um, called the Welcome Rock Trail. Uh, it's an incredible uh, piece of infrastructure that was hand-built. It's 27 kilometres long, Um the, the guy who built it is a guy called Tom O'Brien and it's, it's private land that he owns in high country, high back country. And it's um, a lot of it. Uh, he, he, he sort of managed to build this around a water race an old an old water race that runs around the hillsides. Um, the drive up there is, is, is incredible in itself. Um, and then the views, um, I'm not sure that I've posted it yet on Gallinac. I'm, I must do that, but it, the views are just out of this world. Um, the, the, the trail itself is actually classified as a grade three. Um, I fell off three times, so I'm definitely classifying it as a grade three stroke four. <laughs> so what, what, are the, what are the grades for those of us who are not uh, familiar the, with So, them? yeah, so grade, a grade one or two is pretty low level, you know, not, not very challenging at all. A grade three, would you start to get into the realms of it. Not not too technical, just a little bit more in terms of technicalities, but it, but should be reasonable for you know um, fairly novice riders should be able to get around a grade three. There's got, what a grade three means is there's going to be you know slightly narrow parts, maybe some gnarly parts, maybe some some little um, uh, you know some slightly technical stuff, but nothing that's that should be testing you too far. However, there's there's elements on this trail that are definitely above a grade three because they're, they're just the tight turns, some of the, um, uh, the the surface that you're trying to cross in, in little streams and things and um, that catch you out and would throw you off. And then the, in in places it's pretty narrow, so you're talking like a, um, a a very narrow single track trail with very steep drops off the side, and then you have a wind factor that comes around the hills which would throw you. 
So I, I'm not so bad because I'm 97 kg, so I've got a bit of weight behind me, but my wife is getting blown all over the place. So so that's how I would say, I would suggest it goes up a little bit in terms of the technicalities of it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's just a spectacular place. It's it's kind of, you feel like you are actually in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's it's, it's that sort of place. Um, and the same week we went and rode a, a, a trail which is runs between uh, Lake Tiano and Lake Manapuri, which is uh, is more of a gravel trail. It's a lot a lot lower level in terms of technicality. It's probably just a grade two. Um, we just did that for for some fitness. Uh, this week I'm up. I'm actually in Auckland and training um, instructors for bike cycle skills instructors for the national cycle skills program. So a bit of a, a mixed couple of weeks really. Fabulous. I'm so envious of your life, Foggy. I really am. No, it's horrible. <laughs> I'm getting to... I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to complain about the weather like I do in every every podcast, but I've not <laughs> got, you know, in lockdowns, I've not, but I've not got very far, you know, and just to listen to these adventures and, and that, uh, you know, that you're, you're going out and you're coaching um, around New Zealand oh, yeah, as but well. It's fantastic. Yeah, you've got to remember, mate, we'll be going into winter as well, so that yeah, you know, our true, winters yeah. will... We'll be down at minus eight, minus twelve, which you just don't want to ride in. You know? No, so, no. So, yeah. I, so yeah, I, I've yeah, I've not got very far. I've, I've got a couple of short rides out in the last week, but just very short ones. You know, a lot of lot of indoor cycling. But um, but yeah, I've been really busy on the podcast front. Um, so yep. with our kind of big plans for the year lined up, as well as the in- interview that we did last week with. Simon Jones at Cycle Park and the one we're going to listen to in a few moments with Suzanne Forop. We've got we've got quite a few others. I've lined up a really I'm not I'm not going to give away any names at the moment. We'll let, we'll leave that for surprises for the for the yeah, future. But um but yeah, we've got um got a, a an episode on tandem riding. I've got a couple of amazing uh, people who are going to share their stories um of tandems, actually more than a couple, um, including some world record holders. Fantastic. So looking, yeah. looking forward, looking forward to that, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, plan, planning a few more as well. So yeah, that's that's been keeping me, keeping me busy. Um, so let let's go into the interview with Suzanne. As I said, Suzanne is uh, works for Cycling UK in Scotland. Is a, a, a amazing uh, stories that she's going to tell us some of her um, experiences on the on the bike. Uh, she's a big campaigner for. Um, women cycling and getting more women into cycling in particular, but just to get more people cycling uh, generally uh, does does fantastic work, leads some amazing projects up in Scotland to, um, to do that. So I kicked off by asking Suzanne um, to tell us a bit more about her life in cycling. So here she is. Like lots of women, I cycled as a child. I stopped as a teenager. Um, I obtained a car and I didn't didn't think about cycling at all um, really until my early 20s when I came back to England from Edinburgh where I'd been at university and I needed to get to work. It was just a few miles. I was a, a very committed environmentalist. I'd done an ecology degree. I was working um, as a ranger and my boyfriend at the time bought me a bike. That seemed the most sensible um, thing to do was, was to buy a bike it was a um it was a rally mountain bike heavy um as it turned out not that great but actually it, it did the job and in my early 20s it it got me around to work I really enjoyed it um just getting some fresh air in the morning all the things that I still love around cycling um 
I, I love then. And that that was really, I suppose, the start of my adult cycling journey. It's probably a very familiar story for lots of women. Um, and I continued to cycle. I became, I suppose, what's not known as a keen cyclist. So those everyday journeys to work um, sort of escalated really into setting up a, a cycling club when I worked in London on a housing estate um, with a local resident called Mark. We set up Pollard's Hill Cyclists. And that really just led the whole thing completely out of control. So it was long rides at the weekend with the club. Um, really enjoyed that. We had a incredible range of people coming out sort of you know barristers poets plumbers, people on benefits all coming out because we, we worked on a um, housing estate um just just outside me um so that 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 was great um moved back to scotland um really enjoyed a couple of good big cycling holidays to cuba Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, that really sort of opened, optimized the cycle touring in hot weather, which was just the most incredible, blissful experience, um, which led me to, to leaving my job in Edinburgh um, and cycling around the south of India um, with a highly unsuitable man, it turned out, but um, that was all, all fine and interesting experience. Um, so I suppose like yeah, like a lot of people, one, one thing leads to another. You you start cycling at one end and, and, and you find all other forms of, of cycling. So really now I'd probably call myself a, a touring cyclist. Um, but my, my big break in cycling was when I wanted to become pregnant. I, um, I got married. My husband and I got married quite late. We struggled to conceive. Um, and cycling just seems just, just too risky, just something that I didn't want to do while we were trying to become pregnant. And when our son was born very prematurely, I just couldn't ever imagine cycling again. Um, it wasn't really something that, that you know, holding a, um, a newborn, very unwell child, um, I ever thought would happen for me um, again. It took 18 months for me to sort of really come out of that haze of, of um, anxiety and stress and feel that actually I needed to, to get back to cycling, to get back to being me, because it was such a a huge part of my identity, something I enjoyed, something that I needed for my own mental health. And so uh, the local cycle group were really instrumental here in, in Dunbar in getting me back on my bike. That's why my Twitter handle is back on my bike. It, it all really started with, with with that process of very small, short journeys with my son, with a local cycling group, learning about local routes, feeling my confidence increase again. I mean, I used to be someone who, who could cycle around the south of India, which is, is not known to be easy cycling. I used to cycle around London, you know, hammering on the tops of cars that got too close. I used to go to critical mass on a Friday night and, um, you know, rage my bike above with the cabbies. Um, but yeah, it was completely different once. Once I had a, a new life to be responsible for, the roads just looked like something I would never want to go on. So it was very small steps recovering my cycling confidence. And that led me to understanding that separated cycling infrastructure that keeps you away from motorised traffic is actually what we need. Um, conveniently, I married a man who's Danish. Um, and so a lot of our family holidays um, are in Denmark. It's, you know, it's, it's breathtaking, eye-opening. Um, incredibly inspirational to to cycle through Copenhagen um, and see an enormous mass of humanity on two, three, four wheels, seeing incredibly elegant women in beautiful dresses with lovely hair, with two toddlers attached to a, a cargo bike. Um, 
everywhere, pregnant women um, sitting on the, the backs of bikes. Um, a trip to the Netherlands is, is equally breathtaking in a different way because they, they seem to have a whole ballet um, of, of cycling behaviours. So uh, that's all sort of the, 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 short, the short bit of the story, getting back on my bike with my son, started, you know, cycle touring. I'm, I'm back to being that sort of confident cyclist um, who is much more confident now about cycling traffic. I, I campaign for safe cycling infrastructure because I believe that's the best for everyone um, to be able to get out on a, on a cycle. Um, but I have felt a lot of my, my pre-pregnancy um, confidence return. And, and would you say you're back to what you were before in confidence levels, or is there still a bit of a gap? It, it's different. I, I, I suppose, in a very small sense, I view my life differently because I'm, hmm. I'm, I'm a mother now, and so um, I perhaps perceive my my life to be to be different. So I would never perhaps take any of the risks, or I perceive those risks yeah. differently. And also because I'm twenty years older, um, so I mean that's a very personal thing. People, you know, I'm sure people feel these things differently but that that was my perception being in my early 20s and having having no fears um to to being in my 40s and, and being a parent but but that might have happened anyway simply due to the process of of, of getting older so yes I, yeah. I certainly feel a good level of road confidence um but i would rather have separated infrastructure for everyone um to make everyone safe on our roads yeah, I think that that point. I mean, I, that's certainly something that I would recognise about the when I think back to some of my recklessness as a as a young cyclist compared to what I'm like, um, what I'm like now. I think that yeah, age, age just um, gives you a bit more perspective of risk, doesn't it? And and yeah, and, and safety. Absolutely. Um, oh well, well, yeah. Well, what a what a fabulous life in cycling you've led so far, then. Uh, Suzanne, I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot more planned in the future. But let's come to that towards the uh, the end of the interview. But you you mentioned that you live in Dunbar, which is well. You tell us where it is in in Scotland and what it, what it's like around there. Uh, Dunbar's fantastic. We've lived here um, for um, coming up to. 10, 10 years now, um, moved out from Edinburgh again. Like lots of families, you you have children, you move out of the, the big city to somewhere with a, a, a garden. Um, it, it's a beautiful town in, in East Lothian, about 30 miles from, from Edinburgh. Um, we've still got some good shared walking routes, so it's relatively easy to sort of get out of town, away from sort of the high street onto um, sort of the coastal coastal routes and, and some paths and also up into the hills. We are very lucky because we've got a good a good network of sort of back roads that I describe as quiet. Um, I think for most people you would you would find it you know relatively relaxing. We're not we're not um, choked with cars. Lots of our network of, of back roads is only really used by um, traffic from from the houses in in those places so there's often you know the a1 takes most of the um the heavy traffic straight from sort of east Lothian to edinburgh so the back roads are, are relatively clear it's not perfect, but it does feel like a much safer place to cycle so i'm able to to cycle out with with me and i'm i'm not quite so conscious about his safety as if i would you know if i've been in a city or perhaps a much larger larger town excuse me yeah and i i I know that area. I mean, I was, I was you know, I've lived in Ed, I don't live in Edinburgh now, but lived in Edinburgh for years. And and when I do go back up there, it's quite a common cycle route to come out of Edinburgh 
up to North Berwick, down to Dunbar, back through East Linton and Athol Stainford. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, which is where the Scottish flag was um, was dis- was was discovered. The wrong word, created, whatever the right word is for for creating a flag. That's and that's quite close to you, isn't it? Yes, yes, lovely little village. I think the um, yeah. the coastal route out from Edinburgh to, to North Berwick is is very much a club cycle. And uh, the, the cafes of North Berwick in, in an average summer's yeah. day are absolutely packed with, with cyclists. There's a lot of very uh, sweaty lycra action going on. But it's, <laughs> it's a really lovely to, to come out to some great, great views along the coastline. Yeah, I'm very jealous. It is a, it's a great, great part of the world to, to cycle around around there. Um, so, um, so, so you've, you've kind of touched on a little bit about what you get out of cycling, why cycling is important to you, but what, what what does it mean to you? What difference does it make to your life? Um, I suppose it it really. I suppose I often say in tweets that it helps me keep my balance, and I think think something that I would reiterate again. It really enables my physical and mental health to come together. It enables me to deal with the you know the stress of, of work and family life. It helps me find the headspace to think through the things I need to, but also not think about things when I need to. Um, it's one of those activities where, yes, your mind can be um, entirely consumed by trying to go further and faster, but also your mind can can roam and wander away while your, your feet are busy working at the pedal. So I think for sort of my, my physical and mental health, it's absolutely necessary um, but what I really love about it is those travel options, that, that sort of cycle touring uh, elements of it. I just find the most exciting thing. The best bits for me really about cycling these days is being able to you know, pack up my panniers or my bike packing bags along with my son's bags, which he's now able to get on, on his little bike and go off preferably on a ferry using a train and go somewhere completely different and see my son just... Um, I suppose Blossom, his confidence grows. He's able to transport himself. Uh, this this summer, he did his longest ride um, from, from Edinburgh um, to Dunbar. That's thirty five miles um, when he was when he was eight. Um, I'm sure many many children, I'm sure, do longer rides if they're of that. But he's not he's not particularly sporty. But what he really enjoys is feeling his that sense of achievement that you can get from A to B under your own steam and I think that's an incredible powerful thing um, for a sort of experience to feel capable and able particularly for those of us you know who perhaps weren't very sporty at school um, or didn't feel that physical activity was was for them it, it doesn't have to be about sport it doesn't have to be going fast you can feel physically able and, and capable just by turning pedals and getting from one place to another and, and that's what I really really enjoy and seeing fantastic places in the world and uh, particularly scotland where i live yeah yeah well fully fully recognize all of that and i think there's there's nothing nothing better than seeing kids on bikes and the sheer joy and pleasure that they that they get that they get from that it's um yeah it's wonderful i do i do think certainly for me anyway and having spoken to a few other people there is something about cycling that's that's almost taking you back to childhood <laughs> You know, when it because for, for many kids, and I'm certainly one of them, cycling was, you know, if not the number one activity, pretty much the number one activity that you did. You're on our bikes all the time, and there's there's something now about that's. I wonder if 
uh, I wondered myself about, am I being transformed back into childhood and getting the kind of simple pleasure of it all? Um, so kind of seeing it and experiencing it as as well. But, um, yeah, so you, you're a, a, a big campaigner for um, women cycling and, and encouraging more women to, to cycle and you know, creating a, a safe environment for women to, to cycling. So... What, what should we be doing? And I, was, uh, I mean, we in the, in the wider sense, you know, in the cycling community, but also in terms of, of government as well. And um, what should we be doing to, to, to enable that to happen? Well, we need, we need to be making it safe. I think that there's probably some differences between utility cycling, sort of every, everyday journey cycling, going to the shops, going to work, those sorts of activities. Um, how you enable that might be, somewhat different to how you enable women uh, to take up leisure cycling or adventure cycling but probably where they um where they're similar is that you need to think you know about safety everyone needs to feel safe if they participate in anything so certainly for utility cycling we need safe separated infrastructure that enables women as well as men to cycle it's the it's the number one thing that everyone always puts down in every survey and piece of research is that separation from motorised traffic, particularly where there's a lot of it or it's fast. That, that's first and foremost um, what needs to, to happen. You can see that in all high cycling level countries like Denmark and, and the Netherlands. That, that's what they have. And that's where you see more women cycling and equal numbers of women to men. Um, so first and foremost, those are the things you need to look at. Um, along with that, reductions in speed, enforcement, all of those sort of legal issues to make sure that people feel confident um, that when they're on their their bike that they will be taken care of and that people will give them a good space, that cars won't come too close to them, even if the infrastructure isn't perfect. Um, that, that sort of road, road safety um, aspect is probably particularly important for utility cycling in towns and cities where there's a lot more motorised traffic. In places where I live, the, the motorised traffic is, is predominantly in the town. So when I'm leisure cycling, I'm not thinking so much of, about the cars. I'm thinking about the lighting. I'm thinking about underpasses. Does that feel safe? What's it like at night? Are paths lit? Um, and that's about, I suppose, how women feel and how we've been conditions to think about our safety and what might happen to us in the dark I think a lot of women find that a big barrier um, for sea cycling as well as leisure cycling it depends on on where you are what the what the lighting and the conditions are like is the maintenance good on the path um, all of those sorts of issues um, and I suppose you've got sort of the, the social infrastructure in which you you're in um, clubs and groups um, can often perhaps be unwelcoming to women. Um, you need to make sure that if you're if you want your club or group to to have more female um, members, then you need to make sure it's an inclusive, welcoming environment for beginners as well as those who perhaps are more experienced. It needs to be an environment that people feel that they can ask questions and um, enjoy and, and flourish in, and not be made to feel. Um, that it's that it's um, in some way sort of a, a clique or a particular type of environment. Obviously, banter um, can be an issue, and some people see banter as um, something entirely different if you're not a member. Um, sort of in jokes and 
things don't necessarily work for for people so inclusive environment making sure everyone feels welcome and that um everyone is included is, is probably the, the sort of the cycling club that really needs to be be worked on um, in some clubs i wouldn't want to to make generalizations but yeah that those are some of the, just some of the things that, that come to mind um it very much depends on where you are and and uh what sort of cycling you're you're trying to encourage so what, what advice would you give i mean imagine that that um there's 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 maybe a woman um listening to this podcast who hasn't been on her bike for a few for quite a lot of years wants to do it but is not sure you know a bit wary of it for all the reasons that you've described what what advice would you give try and find someone else to to cycle with Does, do you have a friend a buddy is there a local cycle group all of these things i think um, to, to get out and cycle regularly, forming a habit is a really useful thing. It's a lot of the things I think about in my, my day-to-day work at Cycling UK is to support people to change their behaviour, specifically to leave the car at home and um, use bikes for everyday journeys. It's all about that sort of habit formation. We know that if you set an intention and you form a habit and perhaps you have someone else to help you with that, then that makes it all easier. So chatting up with someone else who can take you on a particular route or even you know meet you after work to cycle you home um or meeting on a saturday morning to to go for a ride together if you don't have a club or don't want to join a club very much depends on the sort of cycling you you want to do um, making friends with your local bike shop some bike shops are fantastic others others are not if you can get a recommendation from a good a good source for a good local bike shop that can ensure that you get a bike for your needs rather than the bike that the bike shop wants to sell you um, then that's always good um, there's lots of different projects and programs out there that can either teach you to ride or increase your camp confidence all the sorts of things i do do with um, our projects in in my sort of day-to-day work those sorts of activities there's a lot of them across across scotland and across the uk now trying to support people to to cycle so um, finding out there's the cycling uk website will be a great place to start finding out what's going on in your local area and where you might find some sources of support that's for sure yeah and um and yeah also check out the galanac master cycling pages and and our group as well we've got um we've got riders female and male riders from around the world who post regularly in our in our group but lots of good advice there as well so yeah thanks for that we are hopefully in the uk at least going to come out of lockdown at some point in the next um in the next well i don't want to put a time scale on it <laughs> be tempting fate too much wouldn't it yeah. but it's going to happen it's going to happen we're going to we're going you know our freedoms that we we've given up for a while now are going to start to come back slowly but surely um, and what's in my head, and I'm sure what's in your head, Suzanne, is what's the cycling adventure that you're the first one that you're going to go on when you've, when when the opportunity arises. So, yeah, what's in what's in your your thoughts about that? Um, I think probably a couple of different things. I often go go cycling with my friend Claire. We had some great adventures last year, very very close to home in East Lothian in the borders. So I'm hoping for some overnight bike packing adventures with our our tents um, and sleeping bags. So very happy to um, just just get out locally, quite frankly, at the moment. Um, I think the first bigger trip 
in this summer, I hope, will be um, Orkney and Shetland, something my son and I planned to do last year, um, was, was to get up there. I've got, got colleagues and really looking forward to to seeing to seeing them having sort of, um, adventure time. I love I love cycling on islands, particularly islands off islands. Um, we've been to Orkney before and really want to go back and explore some of the outer islands. They feel really great places to cycle, particularly with children, feel very safe because of the lack of motorised traffic. Um, and they're always very welcoming. So looking forward to that. Possibly the Western Isles if we can squeeze in. Um, and then if we are able to leave the UK, um, then we'll be looking to go straight to Denmark and, and see see our family. Um, and so I'll be cycling around uh, the, the village that uh, husband grew grew up in and uh, enjoying the fjord views. And uh, yes, being able to get some wonderful uh, peace and quiet on the, the cycle paths around my husband's home, I hope. But we'll have to we'll have to see if we're permitted to to leave Scotland first. Well, fabulous! That's more than one cycling adventure there. So you've clearly been you've clearly been imagining this for for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah. Yes, I think I think a lot of cyclists are thinking. Uh, it's certainly, the, all the Facebook pages are full at the moment of what it, what is the first thing you're going to do is we're allowed to hmm. leave our local authority areas. I think there's a lot of cyclists dreaming of um, large and small adventures. I would say that there's one thing that lockdown or being restricted in travel has has been really good for, and that is a lot of people exploring more where they live, um, walking and and cycling, which is fantastic. Um, And the little mini adventures I had with my friend Claire um, over this year were, you know, epic and exciting and and, um, really uh, enjoyable. We we um, we had quite a lot of failure. I suppose I've got a blog post to write about all the things we really did badly last summer. Um, from um, sleeping in farmers, was being terrified that we were going to be um, hoiked off by an angry farmer, which we weren't um, because we've been too too gutless to go anywhere um, more remote to uh, to camp ourselves. Um, we also tried to tried to cycle the Herring Road. If you've ever heard or tried that, it's um, it's the route from here in Dunbar over to Lauder. And uh, in, in Dunbar, used to carry the herrings on their head here over to Lauder. I have no idea how they do, did this because it took us 11 hours to cycle. Um, it's the hardest ride of our lives. Um, incredible views, as you, you would expect, absolutely beautiful um, hill views in the Lammermuir, but very, very hard. So we, we had a lot of learning on that, but also a real enjoyment of, of where we live. We're very lucky to live somewhere so beautiful um, with accessible, epic, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is some amazing cycling around where, where you live, um, Suzanne, and I, I, can't, I can't wait to get back up there. I've got, I, I, did, I did say before we started the interview that Mull was my first place that I was going to go to, but now I'm thinking Edinburgh and a trip round East Lothian and <laughs> down over the Lammermuirs might be, might be what I'm going to go for instead. So you've inspired me there. Um, well, thank, thank you so much, Suzanne. That's, I'm really incredibly grateful for your time. Brilliant. Well, foggy. Um, that was that was Suzanne. There were there were oh, there's loads that she shared with us there that I that I just really stuck in my mind. One one of them, the first one actually, was that when she said about a 35 mile ride with her eight year old son and not being that much for an eight year old. I thought, you know, wow, that's inc- that's incredible for an eight year old to be able to uh, cycle that distance. 
that, that is a pretty a pretty epic ride for an eight-year-old, definitely. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously they're a cycling family, but um, yeah, definitely that's it. I would see most eight-year-olds not being able to go anywhere near that distance. Yeah, and yeah. just the, I think we spoke about this last week, didn't we, about the, just the sheer pleasure of seeing kids on bikes. And oh, it's incredible. How, how also, I, I, certainly for me, I think cycling, part of my enjoyment of cycling is, is almost going back into childhood and having that carefree, these carefree times yeah. that you had as a kid, they come back into your conscious, even so your subconscious. Absolutely. Um, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the, across the world, I think we're seeing a, a resurgence of kids riding bikes. I just wish we could see more riding to school. That would be quite uh, quite awesome. Yeah, yeah it would. It, yeah, it would, it would. And I think when you, well, you know, as Suzanne mentioned there about some of the countries in, in Europe and in Denmark and the Netherlands in particular, but also Belgium, um, the the efforts that these countries have put there over many years to create the infrastructure for cycling it just enables that it just makes it easy yeah, you know if, absolutely. If I, for me to i mean I, I did this last year cycle to primary school with my son and, and back and and it was um it's not that far it should be quite cyclable but it's all on open road some of it quite quiet roads but all on open road and therefore you're right yeah. in with the traffic and you know as we've talked about before in previous episodes, you know, ninety-five percent of drivers are really fine, but you get your, you know, your, you know, your, your not so fine drivers who just make it downright yeah. dangerous. Um, so, yeah, the more that we can do to 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 do that in, I mean, particularly in the UK, I mean, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts in in New Zealand, but in the UK, the the there there's little bits of work on trying to segregate cycle lanes. But it's it's you know, apart from in the cities, it's few and far between. But we're such a crowded country here; it's something that we really need to think a lot more about. But obviously, it's a bit different in New Zealand. Uh, a little bit, but you, you yeah. still have the same, uh, you know, the same sort of driving attitude sometimes. And uh, and there, there are there are pieces of infrastructure being put in around the country to separate cyclists. I mean, Christchurch rebuild, for example. Um, after the, their major earthquake, they've had a real opportunity to put a lot more cycle, cycle infrastructure in. They're doing quite well. Um, they're not perfect by any means. And if you look back at some of those European countries that that have done it right, I mean, they've they've spent the last 40 years doing it. So it's not an instant thing. You've got to make a decision to get into it and then you've got to stick with it. And it can take 30 or 40 years to change all that. So where, where opportunities come up for some of these uh, planners and, and councils that are in charge of places and governments and stuff, they really do need to to bite the bullet and then get stuck into it headlong. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting world. The, the the other thing is, which is is quite interesting around that, is a lot of roading engineers. Uh, they're not cyclists, so they, they often the, the the planning and design of these things is not brilliant. So it's it's good to see in places where. Um, the, the the authorities have actually taken advice from the experts, if that means, which means the cyclists, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, but good, it's, all good. It's a bit like hotel bathrooms, isn't it? You can tell that they're usually designed by men. Whenever you my <laughs> wife goes in, you know, we go to hotel. Shows this this room is designed by a man. Um, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's the same. It's the same thing, isn't it? That what you know. You, the I suppose it's that. It's that philosophy of if you design with one thing in mind, that's all you're going to get. You know, if you if you if you design yeah. it on the on the back of this is for cars, then that's all you're going to get. When actually, it's to be designed for people. 
and all the different people, yeah. pedestrians, cyclists, yeah. horses, horse riders, car, you know, whatever it is, design it, design it for everyone. Um, but it would be lovely to see. I mean, to be fair, in the UK and there's been a lot in London, in around London, some of the other cities, Manchester as well. I know in Edinburgh, um, they're making big, big efforts to do more there. So it, it is happening slowly, but yeah. surely, but we need, we need a lot more of it. And, and you know, even, even in some of the other European countries, I mean, we met, we've mentioned Denmark and the Netherlands, but I know I've cycled in Belgium and there's a lot of um, separated cycling infrastructure yeah. there. It's really good. Um, and, um, and also in France, although it's not quite so um, comprehensive in France and Spain and these countries as well, although they're, they're you know, the bigger, bigger countries. Um, with a lot more space. So I think I think in Paris there's a big effort in Paris to make that a really cycling friendly city. Mm. So it just there just seems to be, and I'm you know for for listeners in in America and South Africa, I'm not so familiar with what's happening there, but certainly around Europe, I think there's a there's a drive for a whole lot of reasons to to do more of that, which is which is great to see. Yeah. The, the Absolutely. Other, the, yeah. the other thing that I from listening to Suzanne was. Her story of cycling on the Herring Road from Dunbar to Lauder, and I mean, it, was, it sounds like she an amazing ride that she did with her with her friend. They are quite a, quite a challenge. <laughs> she said it was the hardest ride she'd she'd, she'd done um, over. And, and I've I've not cycled on that, but I know the terrain that's there. So it's you know it's right out on the on high Scottish moors in some bleak weather as well. So yeah, that's, that's going to be a tough one. But that. Um, but yeah, the the story of the the fishwives that carried the herring that was landed in Dunbar Harbour over to Lauder, and it's twenty nine miles over these um, over these rough trails and boggy paths, and uh, you know, and and they did it in a day, foggy. They could, they put, loaded up about twenty kilos, fifty pounds of herring on their backs, and yeah. and walked and ran that in a day, so they could sell it in the Lauder market. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I think I, I don't think people um, really these days really understand how hard it was back then. But no. the, it's interesting uh, listening to that in in, in terms of the Lauder, um, because this is how small the world is. And where I, I live in central Otago, uh, literally about fifteen kilometres down the road, is a little tiny settlement called Lauder. Now, obviously, the the Scots settled around central Otago all those years ago, and there's a lot of Scottish names down this way. And when I heard that. Um, that name come up, I thought, this is just incredible. So I live very close to the New Zealand version of Lorda, which is a tiny little village. It's a tiny, tiny little place on the Central Otago Rail Trail. But, yeah, there's, there's the synergies are there across the world. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I, I love that. I, lo- I love, I mean, I've travelled a little bit, but I also love looking at maps and seeing these names of Scottish towns that I know well in the middle of New Zealand or the US yeah. or Canada <laughs> and I and I just I just kind of your mind drifts and I think you know that's somebody who has emigrated you know possibly in the 17th 18th century yeah. take you know gone to live you know built a house there themselves and thought I'm going to name this after where I came from and you know that, that's how these that's how these towns yeah. developed isn't it um, well, well, like, I guess yeah yeah I mean you listen to the description of you just given there of Lord and Scotland so Lauder in in central Otago is is very um, um, it's it, it's it's high country it's it's big rolling hills it's lots of tusky tussocky grass you know sort of and and incredibly cold in the winter I mean you're talking minus twelves minus thirteen fourteens there it's a really really 
it, so it would be when they when they landed there all those years ago, they would have seen it very much like home. So they started to, you know, to to name name these yeah. these places. So we've got a lot to a lot to be responsible for uh, of the British, you know, going around the world conquering places and sticking names on on places, you know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's not go into the empire stories. No, of the let's empire. say we'll Probably not, <laughs> not a great, great <laughs> discussion to have. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I remember uh, um, way back. I went on a, a bus, Greyhound bus trip. Did various things around the states. Uh, yeah, more than more than thirty. Yeah, thirty plus years ago now. And uh, on in one one place, I, I can't remember the name of it now, um, which I'd need to go and look it up remind myself what it was but i yeah got got off the bus um no, yeah got off the bus in this little little town which had a scottish name which i can't remember I think this is this is nuts this is like little <laughs> scotland here and they had a, a, a like a shrine to uh robert burns the scott you know the scottish poet um and i just this is like unbelievable that in the middle of middle of this little place in the states they've got that the only, the only annoying thing was they called him bobby burns which was kind of you know kind of annoying oh but you know, yeah, okay. yeah, um, not Rabbi Burns as we as we as we know. Rabbi. So yeah, yeah, so back so back to back to Suzanne. So she she, she talked. We've talked about infrastructure and and separated cycle lanes and so on being really important, but particularly important for um, for women helping um, you know kind of enabling more women to get out on their on their bikes. And I, I liked her advice that she gave for for any women out there that are thinking about it about. You know, get getting a buddy, getting someone who's who you can go out and do it with, and kind of building up. You know, builds up that friendship, but also makes it easier yeah. for you to um, to to get out there. And and also, and I, I I've definitely seen this as well because I remember when I first started going to cycling clubs, they could be pretty cliquey. And yeah, um, yeah. in fact, I remember coming when I kind of moved down here, and the first club that I went to down here, it, you know, it was pretty unwelcoming. There was clear, you know, clearly groups of people there that knew each other well, and you definitely were standing on the outside looking in for a while before you kind of. Yep. I mean, there was some. Let's not say there was some. There were some very friendly people there that were really nice and and welcoming, but the general feel of the club wasn't that great. And I thought, you know, I'm a reasonably confident man, and I felt like that. I imagine if I wasn't confident, or you know, yeah, definitely men, of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that really good advice for clubs and groups, just to think about how inclusive they are and how welcoming they are. Yeah, definitely. Um, even even to the point where you know the, the club can think about putting on specific women's rides or women's coaching sessions and stuff like that. Just it, it just helps um, you know break down those barriers. And you're right, there is, there are some some very clicky uh, organisations out there that you know. And, and if that's the case, it turn me off. You know, I don't I don't I wouldn't want to to join something that's a, that's clicky like that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So yeah. So thank thanks to Suzanne. That, Suzanne, that was fantastic. Um, fantastic yeah, awesome. discussion um, interview that yeah. I had with us. So really, really appreciate her time and 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 doing that. And hope that she can um, get off on her cycling adventures very soon. We're we're all in the UK. We're all just waiting now to hear what the the pathway out of this lockdown is. It's, um, I think things are not not great still with COVID, but they're definitely easing off. So. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully in the UK we'll get we'll get some cycling adventures in the not too distant future. But talking yep. talking of adventures, Foggy, you and I in one of our previous episodes shared our our mutual 
love of Danny McCaskill, didn't we? And he has <laughs> he has just he has just, <coughs> excuse me, he's just released um, another video um, called the Slabs, um, at where he cycles down this um, these these slabs on the Coolin Hills in the Isle of Skye yeah. in, in Scotland. And well, what did you make of that, Foggy? I have to say, it's insane. I mean, it, it's a stunning bit of video, and he is a stunning rider, but it's insane. I've actually climbed on the Coolin Hills um, many years ago and um, been up to the inaccessible, inaccessible pinnacle, I think they call it. Yeah. And it, I know what the rock's like up there. A lot of, They call it a gabbro, I think, and it's a very, it's quite a grippy rock. Um, I, I do remember, and this is a long time ago, we're talking about 30-odd years ago, but I, I remember my woolen gloves getting ripped to shreds as you're climbing up on the hills there because um, of that kind of rock. But So I know the environment. Um, I don't I don't think I've been on those slabs um, from, from memory, but just looking at how he's managed to ride them, I don't know how he's done it because they're incredibly steep. Um, I don't think the video does it justice in terms of you know the, the, the sort of the elevation and then how steep the you know the those rocks are. But and even listening to him as he's coming down, you can hear it in his voice. You know that that it's challenging him. Um, yeah, it's just incredible. I I wish I had a tenth of his skill. I mean that would that would be magic. <laughs> it, it's uh, the yeah, if you, I mean, if if anyone's listening to this and haven't, hasn't seen it, then yeah, jump onto Danny McCaskill's YouTube channel. It's the slabs. It's, yeah. it's on there. It's about six or seven minutes uh, long. I mean, it, 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 even the start of it is incredible because he he's fearless. He's he's climb again. You can't really see it properly from the, no. the camera, but he's he's climbing up this um, this rocky mountain, some you know fairly steep. So it's kind of he's, he's crawling in parts of it with a bike bike to strapped to his to his back gets he gets to the top of it and off and off he goes and it's not i mean these, these slabs are they're they're kind of short sections aren't they so you're going to get a short section of steep slab yeah. and then there's a you know there's maybe a narrow bit with a you know sheer drop down one side to some grassy areas buttresses so he's having to do his usual tricks and jumps over yeah. but there's there's one bit where where he comes down a fairly steep, and you can—he's going really slowly, so you can see it's challenging. And on on his right hand side, it's like hundreds of feet drop down. I mean, it's yep. certain death if he falls, if he falls off, and he just manoeuvres this bike, just you know, just let it go gently down in a little few jumps. Yeah. Just, just that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd I'd get vertigo. I, I mean, even on the trail, I was on at Welcome Rock. There's some there's some drops down there which are relatively. Uh, you know, low level, and it was it was making it was making me shake a bit. So watching that is just just awesome. I actually wonder. Um, I'd love to see the outtakes as well. How many how many takes it took to get down? Whether he did it in one or whether, you know, how many it took. And I actually wonder whether they they managed on one set of brake pads or whether they had to change brake pads and all this kind of stuff because he must have been hanging on to those brakes in, in places. Yeah, I you know yeah I, I looked at because I I looked up what some of the things that he said about it. Um, and it's, um, you know, obviously there's a bit of PR going on here, but let yeah, me yeah. just read out yeah. one part of it, where he says, you literally feel gravity pulling you down the rock. And when the only thing stopping you is your brakes, you really feel how steep it is. And I can just, you yeah, know, when you, yeah. you know, like that one bit that he was coming down, you could do, because there's a drone camera and it pans back and you can get, a you know, get an idea of how steep it is and, and um, yeah, how's, yeah, yeah, the, I think the, 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 
disc brakes are going to be pretty hot at the, at the end of that. Oh, they'll be, they'll be boiling. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously he's using top-notch equipment and he's, he's an incredibly skillful, skillful rider. But uh, the, what I love about his videos is they... He chooses really good music. The, the the places that he rides in are just spectacular. You know, it's it's more it's it's not just the riding that you're watching. It's all the other bits that he that he compiles in there, um, which make it fantastic. Be interesting, so, yeah, to, big fan. interesting to know if he if he did it in one go or more because it's quite a if he did it in more than one go, he's going to have to have climbed up that um climb it up, up again. the top of it a few times <laughs> with the bike strapped to him. But yeah, I did. You usually get the outtakes at some point, so I look forward yeah, to, so to that, that. See what happens coming yeah. out. And um, and and also, it reminded me, of course, that you you mentioned the inaccessible pinnacle on the on the Coolins. Of course, he famously a few years ago, there's one, one of his earlier videos, um, yeah. cycled up, but he didn't, you know, but yeah, took his bike up to yeah. right up to the top of it. So. Yeah, Danny McCaskill. What next? Well, we'll wait, wait and see what comes next. Uh, there's no end. Well, to I'm going to yeah. personal invite to Danny to come out, and you can stay at my place, but come out to <laughs> New Zealand and Central Otago, and we've got some pretty stunning stuff for you to ride out here. <laughs> I imagine it's going to be in demand because mm. um, I, I, in the, the article that I read about it, he, you know, he was saying that he. He obviously had a loads of stuff planned for 2020, lots of yeah. lots of different fil- films and and tours, and you know none of that happened. So he's he's stayed in Scotland and he's you know he's clearly thought let's give myself a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah, he filmed it during the summer when things were a bit more open um, here. But yeah, imagine when the world opens up a bit, he's going to be in big demand. But yeah, so yeah, Danny, if you are listening, um, then. After you've been to Central Otago, um, we'd love to see you at Cycle Park. Um, so I'll be in touch with your agent, as Foggy no doubt will be um, as, yeah. as well. So yeah. yeah, so Danny McCaskill, do go and do go and watch that video, the slabs, um, just incredible. So Foggy, what are your plans for the rest of the week? Yeah, so we're gonna finish off in Auckland with. Um uh, the instructors that we're training, we've got 12 of them on this course. So we'll finish that tomorrow. Uh, I'm actually going to fly back tomorrow night um, immediately after we finish the course. So I'll be home about 10 o'clock tomorrow night and then day back at home. Um, we're going to plan some riding for the weekend. I think the weather's supposed to be pretty good this weekend um, across New Zealand. So, and then I've got a normal week. Um, when I say normal, I'm not traveling anywhere next week. So I'll, I'll plan a couple of, um, couple of rides and stuff uh, locally. Um, so at the moment with my, my riding buddy, my wife, obviously she's back at school. So we, we, most of our riding together is going to have to happen at weekends while she's, she's back to it. But, um, yeah, so hopefully some fun there. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it for, uh, for, you know, for the very near future. Obviously we've got, um, I've got to get past the end of February cause my, uh, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing with, um, a couple of projects, uh, beyond, sort of leaving my job with the national sports body so there's a bit of planning to do there as well next week yeah so to go, go right. some reflection time then for you to be able to oh yeah a bit of reflection time but also forward, yeah. yeah definitely but a bit of time to um to uh to try and look get my a couple of projects i've got hanging on there just to to get them a bit further forward yep okay excellent and i yeah i'd, I'd Looked at the for- weather forecast earlier, so it's looking a bit better down here. Hopefully over over cool. the weekend. So yeah, I'm get out, get out. I'm going to get out. Definitely get out. Okay, so thanks, Foggy. Thanks to Suzanne uh, as well for the interview, 
um, and look forward to jumping onto the next podcast next week. Absolutely. Yeah. Bye, everyone. <laughs>